for Cat Radio Cafe. The testing. Testing. Stay tuned for Cat Radio Cafe Sunday night at 11 on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright on Sunday, December 1st. 12-string guitar player Otis McClay, a hero of the recent Pacifica counter-coup, creator of Audioport and Radio for Houston, voice of staff announcer Don Prince, and the original Mr. Waburn, an old man adopted from the Welfare Department on the WBAI radio series, Poisoned Arts. And in the next hour of Cat Radio Cafe... A panel discussion on haircuts. Sunday night at 11 on WBAI, Cat Radio Cafe. And remember our slogan... Do cats have an opinion of your haircut? You have to ask them. Good evening, and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. You were just listening to Consabor Latina with Marisol, and I'm very happy that you're with us today. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, uh, and if you're like me, you really didn't want to go out in this weather, so if you are holed up at home right now with WBAI on, I want to thank you for staying with us this hour. Um, on City Watch, I try to bring you the voices of the policymakers and policy shapers and advocates and often everyday New Yorkers who are part of the fabric of our lives. And you, our listeners, make it worth it, particularly when you call in to talk about what is on your mind and you decide to weigh in on what we are discussing about during the show. Last year on this day, December 1st, I brought you voices from several different organizations that have been fighting the war on HIV and AIDS for some time. And so today, on what's known as World AIDS Day, again, I'd like to bring you some of those voices, and we're going to discuss where we are as a city in combating this epidemic that is still uh, very much a part of our lives. Um, AIDS is not over, and in fact, awareness is down as new infections in many areas may be up. I'm speaking more broadly, just not uh, specific to New York City, but infections are up among certain populations. There are some challenges among certain populations uh, in bringing the HIV rate down. The roots of the epidemic are wide and they're deep, uh, from stigma and misinformation to the increasing costs of health care. And so joining me in studio this hour is a guest who is on the front lines of this war, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, who I will call Dr. Dimitri during the show. He is a deputy commissioner from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. We're going to talk with him shortly. He's in studio because he's going to take your calls, too. And then we're going to hear from a woman, Diane Delft-Tinglin, who's going to tell us about her journey since she was diagnosed with HIV and how now she is helping others through their journey. So we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But first, I do want to remind you that WBAI is commercial-free, non-corporate, and listener-supported. And you have carried us through for sixty, almost 60 years. We hope you'll carry us through for the next 60. And while we suffered this month-long bump uh, a few weeks ago where we're, our local programming was off the air because of the rogue faction of Pacifica uh, uh, taking over our programming. We really would like you to, to come back to us, to stick with us, and to show our support because right when that took place and uh, we our local programming was cut, uh, we were amidst our fundraising drive. We were only days into it, and we were doing well, but then that was just cut off, and that's what sustains us. That's what allows WBAI 99.5 FM to continue to bring you a diverse range of voices and shows that have been a part of your life for some time. So if you get a chance, what I would really like you to do during this show in the name of City Watch is to just make a pledge. It would be great if you could become a BAI buddy like me where you give a sustaining contribution uh, once a month. You can go to our pledge line at give2, that is the number 2, wbai.org. Again, that's give to wbai.org. You could also call, easy to call, 516-620-3602. Once again, that's 516 620 
3602 or you could just text you could text the letters wbai to the number 41444 again that's just texting wbai to the number 41444 and if you do this is something i i got for our um our listeners who become bai buddies if you do uh become a bai buddy or make a contribution in the name of this show I secured 10 copies of a book uh, where we had the authors on uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, the book is called Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. Uh, we had Ron Carver on the show, and he talked uh, about the significance of this book and the uh, high level of the resistance that might not have been as uh, known at that time. But this book is be- is a beautiful book uh, with a number of images of the resistance newspapers also that had been out there at that time. We have 10 copies of this book. Again, if you pledge at 516-620-3602. So... A new report just came out a few days ago noting how uh, New York City has made significant strides combating the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Uh, It's called the HIV Surveillance Annual Report, and having worked with nonprofits that focus on health care, it's something that I've often looked to to see how much progress we are making here in New York City uh, towards ending the epidemic. So I'd like to welcome into our studio Dimitri Daskalakis, Deputy Commissioner in the Division of Disease Control of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. He's been there since September of 2014. This is one of the largest units in the agency, if I'm correct. He's also an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital uh, with specialties in areas all under the HIV umbrella. And earlier this year, the New York Times had written about him and uh, said that Dr. D, as he's known to his social media following, exemplifies the shift paradigms around sexual and gender minority health. He's advocated a disease prevention strategy that attempts to remove the stigma associated with HIV and AIDS. Dr. D, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. So first, talk a little about the work that your division does. So um, the Division of Disease Control um, really is the uh, sort of public health piece of infectious diseases in New York City. So um, under the division, we uh, we have the Bureau of HIV, Bureau of Sexually Transmitted Infections, Bureau of Tuberculosis, the Bureau of, of Communicable Diseases, which actually means another 90 other reportable conditions, um, the Bureau of Immunization, as well as the Public Health Laboratory. So we have a pretty broad spectrum of work, and a lot of uh, a lot of the emphasis that we have really is on our uh, chronic diseases. So we do a lot of work in outbreaks. So during measles, we were very active. Um, during other sort of uh, infectious disease-related emergencies or environmental emergencies we work. Legionnaires, meningitis. You name it. If it sounds like an infection and it sort of uh, deals with public health, we're, we're, we're behind the response. But one of our sort of more important pieces of work is our, our uh, work with our chronic infections. So very often there are infections that people get, they get treated, and they're over. And there are others that are a bit more complex. And so HIV is our big chronic infection. So, you know, in, it, back in the day, HIV was uh, something in the bad old days, as I, used to, as I call them, was, was a death sentence. And so now we're really looking at HIV as a chronic manageable disease, which means that, you know, uh, disease control shifts from uh, how to keep people alive, but also how to keep people alive and and experiencing a high quality of life. And uh, I touched on briefly the HIV surveillance annual report yes. that just came out a few days ago from your office. Can you talk a little about the strides that have been made? Yeah, so we've you know we've seen significant uh, improvements in the HIV epidemic, and uh, a lot of that revolves around a couple of very important interventions. So I'll just start by saying that um, we have seen a over 60% decrease in new HIV diagnoses since 2001. We are down to uh, 1,917 new diagnoses in New York City in 2018. Now that's historic. So we are under 2,000 for the first time since um, since we started uh, reporting. So really it's, 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 it's the first time ever. And what's really important is that we're seeing a trend where um, new infections, so not just new diagnoses, but infections that are acquired recently are decreasing at a really amazing pace. And that's driven by a couple of things. So what that means to New York City is that we're seeing less HIV transmission in New York. 
So fewer new infections. And you're saying uh, that, what's that the result of what you know? Yeah. Why are we seeing that? So I think we have a, a couple of things that have been around for a while and have been driving the epidemic down um, over the over the last decade, but um, or actually two decades almost. But we also have something new ish or newer that has been responsible for some of the faster acceleration. So the first piece is that we have people treated for their HIV, and every year we see increases in viral suppression with our uh, percentage of people who are in care who are virally suppressed approaching 90%. And so we're really we're really getting there. Now, why is that important? Um, there's a uh, important notion, uh, a not theory, but a fact um, that's been demonstrated by data that individuals who are on HIV treatment and who have a suppressed viral load, and what that means is a virus in their a amount of virus in their blood that's lower than the limit of detection of the lab, so they're called undetectable. Individuals who have undetectable viral loads um, don't transmit HIV. And so we have a sort of uh, two for one. So we treat people living with HIV and they don't get sick. Their disease doesn't progress and they don't die of AIDS. By the way, our AIDS death rate is, is plummeting as well. The other side effect of that great treatment, other than personal health, is that they don't transmit HIV. Now, beyond the fact that that decreases HIV, uh, new HIV infections, it's also a stigma buster because people who are living with HIV are lovable, touchable, like you don't transmit it if you're undetectable. And for folks who are hearing some of this terminology, uh, you know, that is the undetectable equals untransmittable. Yep. U and, equals U. Yep. And New York City is the first jurisdiction in the world who signed on to U equals U because, um, as I think our commissioner said um, about our new data, we really focus on, on data and evidence-based strategies and the data said that undetectable is equal to untransmittable so we signed on first before uh, other government agencies across the world um, the second factor that has been critical in our uh, response to HIV is pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP so um, that is a pill that someone can take daily um, and it prevents HIV almost to 99% if people take it every day. And so what we've seen in our data around new infections is that populations who have uh, started to take PrEP are experiencing significant decreases in HIV transmission. And um, for New York City, the highest uptake of pre-exposure prophylaxis is among men who have sex with men, so gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men. And the effect is that every year we see this amazing decline in new HIV infections. So around 2015, we saw a, a sort of a bend in that curve. And so, you know, uh, HIV infections among gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men have been historically very stubborn. It's been really hard to bend the curve, like lots of reasons. Um, there's a lot of HIV in that community. So in general, there's higher risk of being exposed to HIV. Condom use has been stable or declining over time. And so this introduction of a biomedical intervention like PrEP that actually blocks HIV has resulted in people really not getting infected. And, and you know, as we saw increases in PrEP uptake in New York City. So, you know, in 2015, it was around 15% of men who have sex with men were on PrEP. The year after that, it was about 25, then 40. And then next year, it's going to be even higher. Um, as that number of individuals on this protective medicine went up, so our, our incidence of HIV went down. And uh, I'd read that you adopt what is called a status neutral care strategy. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, it actually just comes from being a doctor. And I, I'll tell you, um, as my clinic changed, as my clinic, my, my, my office time changed from being all HIV patients to both HIV patients and individuals who were on pre-exposure prophylaxis, I realized that I was seeing patients and doing the same thing for them, except for maybe a couple of different lab tests, regardless of their status. So it just seemed really odd to have silos and say, you know, this is care for someone living with HIV and this is care or a strategy for someone at risk for HIV. And so really the common sense for me was, and then my team came up with this really beautiful framework, um, was that we should just take care of people as people regardless of their HIV status because the person on PrEP and the individual who has uh, viral suppression, so it's undetectable, they're really the same person. Do I call that like the whole person approach? I'm trying to think of... Yeah, we kind of call it... Yeah, it's sort of... We, we call it a treatment and care cycle because, you know, when you when you look at sort of traditional ways that people look at sort of goals of treatment, they call them cascades. And the cascade is always like get the, get the pill in someone's mouth and get their viral load 
undetectable or get the pill in someone's mouth and let them you know not get HIV because it's it's prevention. But what we realize is that New York is not so much, and actually all all care is not so much about that one moment because that one moment is not sustainable unless there's a cycle of care where people continue to engage in care and services. And so rather than let an institutional um, sort of bias exist where you create a duality that automatically creates stigma, um, we're, we're our guiding principle that, of course, we're still working on achieving the goal, but the guiding principle is that everything should come to as close as status neutral. So agnostic to HIV status and more focused on what the need the needs are of the individual coming to your to your service. And you're talking also about PrEP and one of the other things that I had read about was this whole approach of PrEP on demand. Mm. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, there is another dosing option. It's not FDA approved. So it's an off-label use of uh, the drug that is, uh, that, well, one of the drugs that's approved for PrEP. So I'll say the name of the drug because there are now two drugs approved for PrEP. Truvada is um, the one I'm talking about. And this dosing strategy is based on a few studies that show uh, that men who have sex with men, so gay and bisexual men who have been studied, um, what you can do is um, you can take a two-on-one strategy of taking PrEP before and after a sexual encounter. So that means double dose of PrEP two to 24 hours before sex and then continue PrEP for two more days after the last sexual encounter. It works. Um, it has a very high level of effectiveness. Um, you know, I think it's it's at the least 86%, but probably closer to somewhere in the 90s. Um, you know, so we still advocate for daily pre-exposure prophylaxis for everyone, but we uh, released guidance around Pride 2019 uh, to providers, to medical providers, as to how to do the 211 or the PrEP on demand dosing so they could guide their patients well. And that, again, came from the experience that we all had sort of clinically that we were seeing patients sort of trying to do it in the wild mm-hmm. on their own and kind of doing it wrong. So we wanted to make sure that we had that option. Now, with that said, we still say daily prep is easier because you can't, it's it's not as complicated. Um, and most people have ta- have problems guessing when they're going to have sex. And so to have to plan two to 24 hours in advance makes it a little bit harder. So we always vote for daily. And if you're a woman, cis or trans, um, there's really no data for using PrEP on demand. Oh, so it's only for gay, bisexual, uh, uh, and other men who have sex with men. So you are listening to WBAI City Watch. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'm joined in studio by Dimitri Daskalakis, Deputy Commissioner in the Division of Disease Control at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Uh, in a few moments, we'll get back to talking about uh, uh, HIV and AIDS in New York City and the progress that has been made and what some of the challenges are. Uh, but first, I'd like to bring you the news of the day, uh, thanks to our Celeste Katz-Marston. Thanks, Jeff. Police have identified the second stabbing victim in Friday's London Bridge attack. Saskia Jones was a 23-year-old graduate of Cambridge University. She and Jack Merritt, a 25-year-old who also graduated from Cambridge, were fatally stabbed in the terror attack, which also left three other people injured. Police shot and killed the suspect, Usman Khan, after bystanders helped take him down on the bridge. Authorities said Khan had been released from prison last year after pleading guilty to terrorism-related charges in 2012. Khan launched his fatal attack in an event marking the five-year anniversary of the Learning Together Network, which focuses on prisoner rehabilitation. Both Merritt and Jones have been involved with the program. In a statement, Jones's family remembered her as a, quote, funny, kind, positive influence at the center of many people's lives. London Mayor Sadiq Khan urged Londoners and tourists not to let terror disrupt their plans or their way of life. The reality is that what terrorists want is not just to divide communities, not just to injure maim and kill, but also to disrupt our way of life, to stop us going about our business. And we have, you know, four or five weeks now until Christmas. This is a really important uh, time for our businesses, for our retailers, for our restaurants. I want to say to Londoners, to those from outside our cities, the best way you can show a stoic response to this terrorist is by coming to enjoy London. Uh, the police are working incredibly hard uh, with the authorities and with others to make sure we're as safe as we can be. And one of the things that we know is other cities around the world not just Manchester, cities in France, cities in Germany, cities in Belgium, cities in USA, have also been victims of uh, terrorism. And we stand united, and we're going to make sure that London is as safe as it can be. Khan also tweeted Sunday afternoon, quote, Terrorism has no place in our society. 
and we stand resolute against it. In national news, the former D.C. political news director of Mike Bloomberg's self-named media company says she sees real problems with how the outlet will cover the boss's run for president. Kathy Kiley, a press freedom expert, told CNN Sunday that it seems like Bloomberg News is still struggling with how to handle reporting on the former mayor's political ambitions. You know, I'm at the Missouri School of Journalism, and one of the things we teach our students is um, the press is a public trust. And I think most people who own news organizations understand that. Um, And you're serving the people who work for these publications aren't serving their own, the owners. They're serving the people, the readers, the viewers, the listeners. And so I think if you look at it that way, it's a very easy call to make. And this is unprecedented in some ways in the sense that Mike Bloomberg is running for president, but it's not unprecedented for a rich person to own a news organization and to be covered by that news organization. It happens True. all the time. So I, I just don't understand why they're making this decision. It yeah, it I'm, really yeah. undermines the credibility of the organization Mike Bloomberg invested so much money in. As a business decision, it doesn't make sense. Kylie left Bloomberg in 2016, while the billionaire businessman and philanthropist was considering a run for the White House. She said at the time she didn't consider the company's approach to covering or not covering Bloomberg, quote, ethical. Bloomberg officially joined the Democratic primary field a week ago. His pollster, Doug Schoen, told radio host John Katzmatidis on Sunday that the ex-mayor's campaign will focus on issues including guns, education and climate change. Hundreds of flights are being canceled and thousands more delayed thanks to a storm moving across the Northeast. The National Weather Service said the strong storm would bring heavy snow and freezing rain to the Mid-Atlantic and New England through Monday and Tuesday. In what's being called a coast-to-coast winter storm, the Weather Service announced ice warnings in the east and heavy rains in California. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo activated the state's emergency command center and put the National Guard on standby. He also said bus service was on hold from the Port Authority to Buffalo, Rochester, Binghamton, Ithaca, and Syracuse. Meanwhile, Mayor de Blasio said ConEd was working to restore power to thousands of customers experiencing outages in Brooklyn. The stormy weather made a bad situation worse Sunday as families in Queens continued trying to deal with the aftermath of a major sewage flood. Department of Environmental Protection officials blamed a blocked conduit for the backup of wastewater that flooded basements and sent residents scrambling to save their belongings and try to pump out the mess. The Red Cross stepped in to help as some residents sought out hotels or other temporary options in the wake of the destruction. WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give2, that's the number 2, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you, Celeste. And I am joined in studio by Dimitri Daskalakis, Dr. D, Deputy Commissioner in the Division of Disease Control at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. He's in studio uh, talking about HIV and AIDS on this December 1st, World AIDS Day. Earlier, you talked about some progress regarding uh, MSMs, uh, men who have sex with men. What are some of the populations or subpopulations where there are still challenges? Yeah, I mean, we the good news is we're experiencing, for the most part, declines across many populations, but we do have very important sort of issues around equity. And so um, like most uh, conditions, most diseases in New York City, they tend to revolve around areas of poverty and race. And so um, one of the, well, actually, in general, the, uh, almost the majority of, of individuals who are newly diagnosed with HIV are, uh, are black and Latino. And so there, there is definitely a disparity from the perspective of, of who is getting diagnosed with HIV. Perhaps the most stark disparity is in women. And in women, um, around 90%, I believe it's a little bit over actually, uh, are women of color. And so, you know, as we're working so hard to end the epidemic of HIV in New York City, um, it becomes critical. And, and, you know, a lot of the work that we do focuses on on race, racial equity um, in the entire agency, not just in HIV. It becomes critical to really uh, try to figure out how to improve access uh, to strategies that will prevent HIV in those populations, uh, because, you know, it would it's not 
implausible to think that at some point we're going to be announcing, you know, we have had zero new diagnoses in white women, but we only have black and Latino women. So we can't really end the epidemic if we don't end it sort of equitably across populations. Yeah. And we're talking about, you know, making it uh, equitable progress. Some of the stats I had jotted down from the report, your report showed that nine out of 10 people diagnosed lived in various levels of poverty and eight out of 10 were black or Latino. But there's also geographic issues. Historically, there are. So I think areas, um, you know, you can you can go on to our Department of Health website and download that surveillance report. And we have really great maps that sort of show you um, really how the epidemic of poverty and HIV are actually a syndemic. So they're actually sort of they are they're in, in tandem step. So parts of the city that are overrepresented in the HIV epidemic are Brooklyn, which has the highest numeric diagnoses, and, and the Bronx. Um, also uptown. Manhattan as well. And so, you know, we say uptown Manhattan speaking Harlem, yeah. Washington Heights, yep, that area. So like upper upper Manhattan. So there's there's definitely a, a, a geographic issue and then also an issue that revolves around poverty and race. Um, and so a lot of the work um, that we're doing, I mean, I'll give you an example. So we launched a uh, campaign called Living Shore that was a, a media campaign that also included some important programming. So not just media, but also some on the ground work that was happening um, that focused on women. And we really made a lot of effort to reach women who were uh, black and Latina because they're at higher risk. We put out recommendations for medical providers that were very clear that that there were sort of there's a racial overlay to risk for HIV, and that it's really important that in addressing pre-exposure prophylaxis, specifically among uh, among women, to really uh, think about where women are from and who they are, which I think is you know part of equity. So you can't really walk into things and be blind to geography and blind to race. You have to be exquisitely aware of geography and race to make a difference. Uh, you know, it's not about necessarily like an equal service, but an, an equitable service, which means sort of adjusting for where the issues are you know and we were talking a little while ago um about you know that for the two of us in the room and also our engineer max we've you were of that age Mm -hmm. uh where we kind of lived through this we've seen this but among younger populations there might not be that same awareness about what had taken place and that hiv is still very much around us and this report also notes that uh, the young are also still more likely to be diagnosed. Yeah. I mean, I think youth is a, is a part of the disparity that we see at HIV. So that sort of age range and that sort of over, over 20, under 27 range, like there's, you know, it's a problem about equity before. So these people are getting uh, diagnosed with HIV now, but they acquired their HIV when they were younger, most probably. And so, you know, what a lot of the work has focused on in youth is really f- identifying strategies to reach youth specifically. And I think a couple of really cool things that have happened in the city uh, to address that, even though there continues to, uh, there needs to be more work in the area, is that, you know, our sexual health clinics, so our former STD clinics, which are now really areas, they're these sort of, uh, I like to call them destination clinics now because they're so uh, sort of changed uh, where people can come to sort of access health services rather than just come because they have a complaint like something's burning or dripping or they're worried about a sore. So people really are coming for services rather than just because of, of you know, a scare. Um, but, you know, we serve a lot of youth in those clinics. And so by, by putting HIV prevention and treatment services there, that's part of the, uh, the uh, de Blasio administration's ending the epidemic strategy was really revamping those clinical spaces into sort of really efficient delivery systems for HIV treatment and prevention. But by, by blossoming those services there that also include uh, youth, not only uh, white youth, but also youth of color, actually at a higher proportion, really trying to put the services where people come and trust us to get uh, to get their care. So I think that's part of it. The other piece that's been really great is that through various streams of funding, including ending the epidemic and the Unity Project, we actually have uh, a pre-exposure prophylaxis program that's specifically for youth. Uh, so we have we have organizations that are contracted in New York City um, who are really pros 
at dealing with youth and HIV. And so they've been our front line um, along with our clinics to actually increase uh, PrEP utilization. And, you know, um, a big shout out to New York State as well is that regulatory changes um, have allowed us to give pre-exposure prophylaxis and treatment to youth without parental consent. And so that's a game changer. And I think my, my hope is that downstream, as we sort of see the effect of this regulatory change in these programs that we've launched, we should see uh, an impact in the epidemic among youth as well. So uh, one of the things we just talked about a little earlier, uh, because I always, and Max knows this, I always like to see what our president has done on any given day. And a little earlier today, he tweeted, he reaffirmed his commitment to end HIV and AIDS in 10 years, 2030. But we often here in New York City, we talk about moving towards ending, I mean, de Blasio announced this years ago, ending the epidemic by 2020. Right. So can you just kind of elaborate a little sure. bit on that? Well, I mean, first, we're, I mean, I think New York tends to be precocious. That's a, uh, that's an, an easy answer to begin with. But um, bottom line is that um, the governor actually, it starts with the, with, with the, actually, let me backtrack. It starts with the community. The community told the governor um, that we needed to create a program to end the epidemic. And so advocates were very loud and did a wonderful job. And around 2015, I think that's right, the governor announced um, this plan to end the epidemic of HIV in the state. Subsequently, we all spent a lot of time going back and forth to Albany for meetings uh, to come up with what the strategies would be for that plan. And so loosely, there were test people, treat people, and give them prep if they're at risk. And so uh, we flushed that out into a blueprint. And that blueprint was accepted by the governor and subsequently accepted by Mayor de Blasio in its entirety. Um, and then Mayor de Blasio did something that uh, other cities haven't done, other mayors haven't done in New York, in the U.S., which is not only did he sign on to a program to end the epidemic, but also invested $23 million of new city money. And in fact, that's what I was going to ask you about. The $23 million yeah. has gone to a number of things. I believe it was also in a network of uh, health centers. You know, talk a little about yeah. where that money has gone to. Yeah, so I mean, the the um, we worked with our community really closely when that announcement came to figure out where sort of the holes in our service are. So realistically speaking, you know, we're we're pretty well funded by uh, the CDC and and uh, and HRSA, which is sort of the Ryan White piece of. Uh, piece of, uh, of federal funding. Um, but there's certain things that you can't do with that funding. There's so many sort of uh, strings attached to federal money. And so we were able with this $23 million to sort of do what is a dreamscape of HIV prevention and treatment services that are different. And so there was a large investment made. Oh, about half of the money went to our sexual health clinics. And so, like I said, these are the old STD clinics in New York mm-hmm. City. Um, and now, you know, they are these you know, way technologically advanced delivery systems of HIV prevention and treatment services. So that was one piece. And so really putting services where people are made uh, access a lot better. But then also we pushed a lot of that money out to our trusted community partners um, who do the service on the ground. So we created a network of clinics that are interlinked um, that do uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis work. And we call that the PlaySure network. We had, as far as I know, the only uh, post-exposure prophylaxis phone line where if individuals are exposed to HIV, they can either call 311 or call our, the, the, uh, the toll-free number that I think is all over our website. And if you look at post-exposure prophylaxis, um, you call that number and someone will give you post-exposure prophylaxis over the phone without a doctor's visit. So all of these bits and pieces come together to create sort of, um, you know, a, a, a new battleship in what's already a pretty significant fleet. And so I think that, that, you know, from the perspective of what does it mean when a mayor invests money? Well, it's what happened to our numbers. So if you look, 2015 is where there's a change and that's really where everything starts and our numbers start to plummet and accelerate really on the back of this ending the epidemic plan. We say 2020, the Trump administration uh, administration says 2030. Um, I think it's because we have different geographies. And also, um, I think um, the reality is that the Trump administration um, actually did use uh, our New York City and New York State strategy to influence the strategy that they're developing nationally. And so I think that um, it's fair to say that other jurisdictions, especially in the South, places without Medicaid expansion and other sort of limits to what healthcare can do are going to 
to have a harder time of it. So I think realistically that extra 10 years is what you need to be able to make the dent that the Trump administration uh, imagines. With that said, you can't ignore trans people and gay people. And so, you know, one of the things that's always concerning to us, and I think New York has been loud about it, is that you can't really erase the populations um, that you're servicing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm obviously very enthusiastic that there's going to be a federal investment in ending the epidemic. I'm hoping that that investment allows some flexibility so we're able to do what we need to do rather than what uh, outside entities believe that we should do. And then ultimately, if the rest of the policies don't jibe with it, it's going to be hard to end anything. So you are listening to City Watch here on WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, I am joined by Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis uh, from the New York City Department of Health. We've been talking about strides made to combat the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And what what I thought would be wonderful to do is to bring you uh, the voice of someone who has been living with HIV for some time, who had a wonderful piece in AM New York a few days ago describing her experience. Her name is Diane Delft-Tinglin. She is living with HIV, and she is uh, with the Alliance for Positive change. Diane, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Thank you. So tell uh, Dr. Dimitri and I a little about your experience when you were first diagnosed uh, and, you know, when that happened. Okay. I was diagnosed in August of 2009. Um, When I got found out I was diagnosed, I was with my partner for about three years. And um, we previously had a child that had passed away a year before so at the time when I went to go get checked out, it was more that I was just getting a regular checkup. And um, when I got checked up, I found out that I was positive. And it was unexpected because, like I said, I was in a relationship with one person. And I had previously been checked out, so I knew I didn't have it. So it was like, where did this come from? How did this happen? So when I first got diagnosed, it was like a lot of questions running through my brain by me. And at that time, I mean, for many people, when they, you know, heard of HIV AIDS, they thought at some, at one point in our history, this was considered a death sentence. Tell me about the steps you took towards getting assistance and towards gaining control of your, of your health, you know, your future health. Well, for me, um, I started finding out from other people that, you know, it's not a death sentence. And that if I take my meds and I be adherent in my treatment, that I'll be okay and I'll live a long and healthy life. When I first found out, I said, okay, let me just go to the doctor. But going to the doctor is difficult in my neighborhood because in my neighborhood it's different. You know, people, they still live in the past of what HIV was. I don't feel like they have reached, you know, where we are today with it. And that is that you can live a long, healthy life. So there was a lot of negative stigma. So when I started going to the doctor, I didn't feel like I was getting the services that I needed because I didn't feel like they were really paying attention to me, that I was a young person trying to figure out life and figure out how to manage this disease, you know. And um, it was hard at first, so I ended up not going to the doctor for a while because when I first started going, I didn't feel welcomed enough or educated enough to even stay because where were the people that looked like me, you know, so that I could feel comfortable enough to even want to go or understand what's going on with my diagnosis. So um, it took me going to different agencies, meeting different people and networking that were HIV positive to find my way to where I am now, which is the Alliance. I feel like once I got with the Alliance, they were able to help navigate me in the direction I was trying to go, which was to be healthy, which was to help others and give back. So it was a journey, but... It was like trial and error for me. Heather, this is Dimitri. I I would love to hear more from you about stigma because I think that, um, you know, from my perspective and public health's perspective, I think stigma is one of our key drivers of HIV infection, but also exactly as you said, um, people's uh, sort of fear of connecting to care. So I'd love love to hear more of, of that experience. Yeah, when I first went to the doctor, you know, at the at the clinic, there's like this one main clinic in my neighborhood. So everybody goes there. You got the people who go in there for prenatal. You got the people who go in there for um, other things that may be going on with them. But then when you come to the infectious disease part, which is what they refer to it as, you, you know whoever's going in that corner has it. 
So it's like automatically you feel the fear of, okay, now people in the neighborhood are going to know that I have it. And now people are going to look at me funny and treat me messed up because I have it. You know, people look down on you like as if just by hugging you or touching you, you're going to get the virus. And that's not true at all. Right. And, and just you know? incidentally, recently there was a survey done in the U.S. of sort of millennials and in that sort of age range. And, and, and there was a lot of them who were scared to hug someone living with HIV. So there is definitely some more work to be done from the stigma perspective. But I just wanted to highlight that this is exactly sort of why we talk about the status neutral approach. So, you know, I think that, you know, in my in my office where I work, um, when we started seeing PrEP patients and then coming to that clinical space wasn't just about HIV, but could be about HIV treatment or prevention, all of a sudden it sort of changed the tenor of the space a bit. I think the other part is, I'd love to hear more from you as well about the importance of sort of seeing people like yourself. Talk to me about what that means. Yeah, that builds you up inside because now you know that there's someone just like you going through or have gone through what you're dealing with right now and they're help, able to help navigate you because it becomes like a face, a face of HIV that this is HIV, this is me. HIV is not what you thought it was. You know, people are getting up every day and they're going to work and they're taking their medications and they're living long and healthy lives. Seeing somebody else that's a peer that is further off in this than I am, when I, when I first started being around peers, made me wanted to do more for myself, made me say, why am I allowing depression and stress and anxiety to pull me down to a negative point where I'm not getting up and going to work or I'm not getting up and going to that doctor's appointment? You know, when there are people out here who went through the same things and they're getting up and they're going to those doctor's appointments, they're getting up and taking their meds, you know? So being around people who have the same lived experience helps you in a lot of ways because I can talk to them about the things that I might not feel comfortable talking to my doctor about. I can say things to them that I know other people might look at me and say, oh my gosh, they'll have a better understanding and more compassion towards me. So it really does help having that peer there to help give you that guidance and shine that light on what you're not seeing. And Diane, you, you talked about the influence that peers had on you and it's kind of like you've flipped it flip the coin and now you're doing that for others at the Alliance for Positive Change. How many, you know, can you talk a little about your work there, what you now do on a daily basis? Well, right now I feel like I'm where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the space where I can give back and help others who are newly diagnosed or have been diagnosed and fell out of care, fell out of treatment and needs assistance. And I'm able to do that now through the Positive Life Workshop, which is I'm the lead trainer of right now. And um, we have other peers that are on the team. And the way that the peers connect with those clients, you know, it's amazing because we'll have people come in there who are so distraught. And just by seeing us and seeing how we move and we take care of ourselves and we are so driven for more out of life, it makes them feel the same way, too. I like to tell my clients every time I see them, always remember at the end of the day, you matter, you know. When you look in that mirror, you get up every day, you're the first person that looks at you. So say something nice to that person that's looking back at you. You know, let these things be your mantras or your positive affirmations to get you out that bed, get you out that house, to get you to that destination that you need to be to help you be that better person. You know, and I, and I make sure I show it to them every day. I make sure I talk to them every day. And by me being at the Alliance, I get to be around these people that need that, that need that support, that need that love and that push to do more for themselves. And uh, Diane, on this World AIDS Day, what advice do you have for others who may be, you know, confronted with HIV or not sure whether they want to come forward and get a test or even to, to talk more openly about their status? Know your status because knowing your status gives you the power to take control over your life and the people that you come in contact with, you know. Not knowing your status leaves you out there in the dark, you know. And when something happens to you, like becoming positive, you know, we all say, oh, why me? Or how could that happen to me? Or that can never happen to me. Because I was one of those per- people, you know. And then when it does happen to you, it's like, what are you going to do? Don't wait till when it's going to happen to you. Make the steps. If there's condoms out there and they're making all these different type of condoms for people to use and be comfortable with, Try them out. Use them. Don't leave yourself in the wind. If you know that you're supposed to go to the doctor every few months and get that OBGYN 
or go and get, you know, your blood tested for HIV, then get up and do that. Nobody can do it for you. And if you don't take the, you know, the action to know your status for yourself, then how can you expect somebody else to come and tell you? You know, I didn't have the opportunity of my partner telling me until after I found out the fact. But why are we talking about these things beforehand, you know? Why is it so hard for us to bring this up in our relationships, you know? But then we want to bring it up when we find out that we are. I have another question, something that you said really resonated for me, which was about sort of the power of treatment for you. And and, and I just, what is... Tell, I think that us saying that undetectable is equal to untransmittable doesn't ma- mean as much as you saying what that means to you. It means a lot to me because I'm in a I'm married right now. I've been married for six years, and my husband is HIV negative. You understand? And my husband will continue to be HIV negative because I take my meds. And I'm adhering to my treatment. I'm undetectable. You equals you, and I believe in it. You know, if it wasn't like that, then now he would have been turning over with a diagnosis of HIV, and he hasn't. That's because the power in taking care, taking it, your medication gives you the power to take control of this virus. You and know? the only way you can find out is by getting tested, right? Exactly. There you, you have go. To get tested. Getting tested <laughs> is key in life. It's the first step. So, Diane, yes, Diane, I want to thank you for being with us. How can people learn more about the Alliance? Yes, you know, well, with the Alliance, we have a website. It's www.alliance.nyc, and we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we're located at 64 West 35th Street in Manhattan. So if you ever need any assistance or want to know any information or just to get tested, please come on down and see us. Diane Delftanglin, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI tonight. Thank you. So, uh, Dimitri, you and I were talking a little before the show, and uh, I... We both noted that Diane is going to be one of the participants in uh, World's Day, a World's AIDS Day activity tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about what the city is doing? Yeah, so we we have two uh, World AIDS Day events coming up. The first is tomorrow, and it's at the uh, Academy of Medicine um, in Manhattan. And um, that event is a community event um, that really focuses on, you know. Uh, experiences people have had um, there will be some speakers um, that are from New York City government in, uh, and they will talk about the new numbers and where we are and and the strides that we've made but then there'll also be a panel of people living with HIV who will uh, be discussing their experiences there'll be performances there'll be uh, there'll be poetry reading. So it really, it starts around 11 a.m. And, um, it's a great. So if you're, if people are around, it's a wonderful thing to experience because you really get to see the power of community in a way that, um, that in a lot of other uh, diseases you don't necessarily see. And then, um, the, the tone changes, um, on Thursday, December 5th and at the Brooklyn Expo Center in Greenpoint starting at 4 p.m., um, there will be the, the sixth annual Red Ball which is uh, New York City uh, and the Kiki Coalition's co-sponsored event um, that is a house and Kiki ball, very similar to those that you would see um, on on television at on that series pose. Oh. So um, if you really want to see something amazing um, and you want to see what youth can do, uh, definitely uh, come on over to Greenpoint at the Brooklyn Expo Center. It's free. Um, the only reason that you wouldn't get in is if we're too crowded pretty much historically that does eventually happen because uh, we have a, a lot of folks who come so if you want to see some really amazing voguing and some uh, some really powerful youth uh, come by and, and and commemorate World AIDS Day with a celebration so uh, in our final 10 minutes I do want to I haven't gotten to this the phone lines are open if you would like to call to talk to Dr. Dimitri offer your opinion uh, uh, talk a little about your story the number is 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, please give us a call at two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Moving ahead, how is the city going to shift? And and through your work, how is the city going to shift the narrative about HIV? I mean, I think you know we have a lot left to do, but I think that we've had this sort of beginning steps. This U equals U thing, which you heard from Diane, how important it is. Like. 
a, a woman, especially on the phone, just saying to us that, you know, she knows that her husband's not going to get HIV because of something she controls, which is like, I am on my medicines and I don't transmit HIV, means that we don't look at people living with HIV as infectious anymore if they've achieved that undetectable viral load. That changes the whole story. So you're not looking at them as like someone who can spread disease. They're just someone who can live and love and, and they're, you know, they're the, the virus becomes a afterthought rather than a central piece of their lives. So we've been doing a lot of work in sort of getting that word out again, being the first jurisdiction to sign on, having just had a major campaign uh, that launched around this as well. There's more work to do. I think providers, medical providers, um, some are skeptical. Um, despite the fact that the CDC and the National Institutes of Health have all really signed on to this notion of U equals U. So we have a lot of work to sort of get that word out to really make sure that they're telling their patients that. Um, you know, again, this is about stigma and equity. And so I think we um, continue to do work in our populations uh, to actually let our community uh, really drive the effort. So we've, we've done micro grants where we've given organizations like small funding uh, opportunities to be able to do really community focused work. We've done really interesting things with trans populations, trans uh uh, organizations where we've funded some organizations that had very small budgets into much larger organizations to be able to achieve like some goals within the community. And we're working to go deeper and deeper into sort of where our epidemic drivers are. So biomedical things like pills and mouth, it really works. But if you can't make people comfortable to come and see you and you, Diane really, I think made that pretty mm-hmm. clear that if it's not comfortable, it's not going to work. And so we continue to work to identify ways to make, uh, you know, care and our care in New York city as user friendly and community embracing as possible. Well, you know, one of the more troubling statistics that the uh, national institutes of health, uh, you know, has talked about is that so many people, uh, are living with HIV but are not aware of their infection and the right. uh, what one in seven I think uh, mm-hmm. you know you know if I'm you know scared about coming forward you know I'm not sure what I'm going to do yeah. uh, you know I could be passing this on to someone else how do you you know it, what is you know the secret sauce I you know lack of better yeah. to get someone to say you know what I do need to get tested I think that the secret sauce is the undetectable is equal to untransmittable idea so what you're saying is that if you're aware of your status not only do you control your own health but you become someone who won't transmit the virus and so I think people are always scared of of being potentially you know sick themselves, but also being contagious. And so if you remove that from the mix and say that you know getting yourselves on medicines means preventing transmission, I think um, that feels good. I mean, I'll tell you that you know I I come from an HIV testing space, so a lot of the public health work that I used to do before I started working at the Department of Health was doing HIV testing in 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 clubs. And um, I really learned there that um, the reaction that one should have with a new HIV diagnosis is not a, 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 a sort of shock and awe and sadness, but rather a, so now we have to do something about mm-hmm. it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like the 80s and 90s where an HIV diagnosis meant, you know, that's it. You have a certain number of years and you're done. Like an HIV diagnosis in this era means that your life expectancy is the same or depending on how you look at it, greater than people without HIV because you get connected to care and do all that other good medicine. So you're very passionate about this work. What do you want your legacy to be? I really want to see the uh, status neutral notion really take over New York and then spread beyond our city. I, I just feel like the way that we have historically siloed HIV care away from other care, and especially now that we have preventive services like pre-exposure prophylaxis, like those those silos are 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 are. It really devastating from the stigma perspective. And so I think that even though the federal government has sort of siloed uh, funding into HIV negative and HIV positive, like it's public health's job and healthcare's job to really weave those together. So it's about the people. And so I feel like every time I, I go somewhere, um, or even in my own clinical experience, start to see that that the line is blurred and that that sort of weird, what they call the zero divide between HIV negative and positive people is blurred. The effect is that 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 the stigma starts to go away. And so I think that, you know, beyond the fact that it's also more efficient. So rather than creating two doors, you have one door for everyone. Um, I think that, that the idea of really uh, 
really pushing everybody and care providers and service providers into looking at how they can do service for people and not for an HIV status is really what I want to see when I sort of look back at my career, you know, decades from now. <laughs> and you've talked about, uh, you've talked a little about the maps that are, that you want yes. people to see. Um, where can people go to learn more about your work and also just to get all the information they sure. need if they're listening to this show? So the New York City Department of Health website is great. My advice is to just go visit there. And if you go to the search bar and put HIV, a entire universe of things will open up. Um, you can you can look at the surveillance yourself, like that's available publicly. The surveillance report that you're talking about is available on our website, um, as well as the maps that sort of show you where HIV is uh, is, is more prevalent and 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 in, and um, in New York City. So I would say that, and also we have all the information that I've talked about. So this undetectable is equal to untransmittable. If you want to know more and what, whatever your status is, I recommend that you should learn about U equals U because that's how you get rid of stigma. But we have great frequently asked questions on our website for both medical providers as well as for uh, for just you know your average New Yorker to take a read just to see what the power of, 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 uh, of testing and treatment really are. And, you know, I've got just about two, three minutes left. So and I know I'm going to have to wrap up the show, but, you know, I could continue this conversation for quite some time on this World AIDS Day. What's the main message you want to send to our listeners? Um, to, well, main message is get tested. That's always the first. It's where everything begins. And so um, testing means a couple of things. If you are diagnosed with HIV, you can do something and you're going to live a, a long, normal uh, life and will not transmit HIV. And if you are negative, it's an opportunity if you have risk for HIV exposure to figure out what you can do to prevent getting HIV like pre-exposure prophylaxis. So the big message is get tested. But then the other message is that this is all because of our community. All of the strides that we're going to talk about at World AIDS Day, all of the improvement in numbers, all of the rates going down, all of that is because of folks like Diane who have been uh, fierce advocates uh, that have really changed the way HIV um, looks in New York City. And, you know, I, I, I want to walk away from this World AIDS Day um, with New Yorkers proud that we are going to be a beacon of how to end an epidemic in a big city. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, Dr. D, thank you so much for joining me here in WBAI studios tonight. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you haven't gotten a chance and you find WBAI valuable to you and it's been with you for some time, I do want to remind you, we would love your support for this commercial free non-corporate station. We want to be around for another 60 years. We rely on you. If you get a chance, go online to give to WBAI.org or just give a call to our pledge line at 516-620-3602. Or if you prefer to text, just text the letters WBAI to the number 41444. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I want to thank you for joining me again tonight on this show. If you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to Programs and then Archives. The show will be up in just a short while. You could also follow me on Twitter at Jack Heights. That's J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. And City Watch is also on Twitter at City Watch WBAI. And on Facebook, Thanks again for tuning in, and please stay tuned for the Golden Age of Radio with Max Schmidt. My name is Arthur Schwartz. You may know me as an activist attorney or as a founder of the New York Progressive Action Network or as counsel for Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and Bernie Sanders. I'm proud to announce my latest foray into activism as the host of a program on WBAI. The show is called Advocating for Justice. It airs every Monday from 5 to 6 p.m. Each week, we'll talk to activists who are successfully employing strategies which address the challenges we are facing in a post-Trump and post-Hillary world. 
Again, that's Advocating for Justice, Mondays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI 99.5 FM. It will be movement building time on the radio. Join the African Diaspora International Film Festival from November 29th to December 15th and celebrate black life on the big screen. Enjoy 59 narratives and documentaries to be presented at Columbia University, Teachers College, Cinema Village, and Mist Harlem. Highlights include Ali's Comeback, The Untold Story, Two Weeks in Lagos, Mari Gela, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Behind the Mask, and more. The African Diaspora International Film Festival, November 29th to December 15th. For more info, go to nyadiff.org or call 212-864-1760. The ADIFF, that's meaningful entertainment. That's a marvelous sight. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship. And uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. History lives on the golden age of radio. Every Sunday night, 7 to 9 p.m., 